hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Answer Show! Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with that. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> Alright. Hello and welcome to episode 349 of the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 19-year young adult cancer survivor broadcasting right now from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. The Stupid Cancer Show is a program of Stupid Cancer, the largest support network for young adults affected by cancer online at stupidcancer.org. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40 sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. On this episode, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Zachary Berger, a primary care physician, epidemiologist, and bioethicist at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and Regina Holiday, founder of The Walking Gallery of Healthcare, about the role of primary care in cancer survivorship, the doctor-patient communication, and the shared decision-making and patient-centered care. There's a Mouthful for you with special Survivor Spotlight on our very own Allie Ward, VP of Programs, an eight-year ovarian cancer survivor, all about Get Busy Living Day. All right. Got a full house here tonight. Good evening. Kenny Kane. Matthew Zachary. Sean Shapiro. Hello. Mallory Rivera. Hello. And our latest addition, the one and only summer intern of Grandeur. <laughs> Jessica McKenzie in the house. You get your own applause. We are really thrilled that uh, you're going to be joining the team for a couple of weeks. Uh, You've been a sort of a fixture in our community for quite a while now, and we're really proud to have you here. Why don't you just uh, tell our our audience a little bit about yourself? You have uh, been down the road, as we say. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited for this summer. Um, I got stomach cancer in the middle of undergrad. Um, It's a genetic condition that my family has, and I had my entire stomach removed uh, when in 2012, I think. Oh, stomachs are overrated. Yeah, yeah. But um, so 
cured of cancer, but unfortunately it made my intestines stop working correctly. So now that's what I have to deal with. But at least I graduated this spring and now We are here. very, very proud of you Thank for graduating you so much. getting through all of this. So what's it been like to be, you know, twenty, twenty one, twenty two facing this? It's so young and you know, we are a young adult organization, obviously, but this is kind of like the the tail end of the bell curve down there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the hardest part of the whole cancer process for me was the feeling of isolation where everybody else my age was off having internships while they were in college and going on crazy trips for spring break. And I have had, what, six surgeries in the past two and a half years. So, I mean, and I'm really happy to work for Stupid Cancer now as their intern because they personally helped me get through some really hard times. So Right. And I want I just want to talk about that because, you know, I was your age. I was twenty one, you were twenty. Yeah. And I lost many of my friends and they all went off to grad school and I was stuck at home dealing with like, Am I gonna live? Am I gonna die? And mm-hmm. and you know, what do I do with the rest of my life? how have you challenged that? How have you gotten you know, pushed through that? I mean, yes you have an organization that I wish that I had when I was sick and that clearly has thankfully helped the the process be less miserable. But, you know, at night when you're in your bed going to sleep, you know, what do you do? What do you think about? I think about pizza rolls. <laughs> cats. Um, I know every time I've gotten really sick, I've adopted a cat kind of. That's happened twice. Oh, really? But okay. <laughs> I mean. That's your go-to. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I've just. I started reaching out to people on my own and I found other people who had my mutation and I found other people my age who had gotten sick and I mean part of it too is personal attitude when everything started happening I was kind of a really grumpy angry person and I mean I was resentful that some friends walked away but I probably didn't help that much right. because I was kind of abrasive I guess and bitter yeah, yeah exactly but, I mean, over time you realize, well, this is what's happening. This is what I'm going to live with. And it kind of helped, not helped, but, like, it steered me on a new path. I mean, I wouldn't be interning here now. I started college as a pre-vet major and graduated creative writing. And now I want to go into nonprofit work. Right. Wow. So yeah. <laughs> sometimes I just think about that, like, some good things have come from yeah, I don't really get to meet a lot of, again, you're like the sort of the tail end of our bell curve population. And, and you know, I was at the tail end mm-hmm. of our bell curve. And, it, you know, we meet a lot of people diagnosed in their 20s, yeah. in their 30s. But I remember those feelings and, and I'm right there with you. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I, it's an amazing story. You have great parents, a great family. <laughs> yeah. They've been with you the whole time. And uh, I know Sean has been involved talking with them. And thank you for the the amazing fundraiser that you did in your speech oh. which your mom embarrassed you on facebook by posting which is no, sort of like part a thousand the course. people watched i know it, it was extraordinary <laughs> so, it was really extraordinary it's cool you can hold your own on stage in front of hundreds of people it's which very impressive good. for 23 years old thank you the last yeah. time i took a public speaking class i think my sophomore year of college and the last thing i remember i was bad at it so <laughs> then, like when i got up there and made a speech that night and i didn't do horribly <laughs> I was kind of excited. Yeah, so. I can well, relate. I think I, I've, I don't know if I, I failed a speech. I failed like a persuasive uh, <laughs> speech. If, if they can only see me now. I leveled up. <laughs> it's good. Speaking of which, you're going to Hawaii, Kenny. I am going to Hawaii Between now and the next show. Uh, uh, yeah, because we're not doing one next week. Right. Uh, the tenth, I will be flying out to Hawaii to speak at 
Hold, please. Uh, <laughs> kind of catching him off guard on the calendar. Yeah. Um, it's, I'm trying to find the name of it. It's uh, Journey Together Cancer Survivorship Conference 2015, Finding Your Own Path. And it's happening in Honolulu or on Honolulu. And uh, I'm excited. Uh, no, it's the island. It's, Honolulu is on the big island of Hawaii. It's the capital city. Okay. Yes. I'll take your word for it. Yes. Uh, so I have a half hour to tell my story and then tell the stupid cancer story and then show some videos and hopefully uh, garner some interest in CancerCon. That's a long speech. It's a long That's speech. That. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I should add that I the reason I know that is because I watched The Descendants. Oh. <laughs> I have no civics, geography, history whatsoever. But um, I, I am very excited. No, it's great. It's great. Um, so just to top off this uh, this segment here, um, the last show I was 40, and now I'm 41. And it's been an interesting transition to... And I, I actually haven't shared this specifically in a very long time. The doctors told me, <clears throat> this was you know, 20 years ago, that there was an extraordinarily likely chance that I would develop a blood cancer within 20 years of my diagnosis because of the level of radiation that I received in my body. And even though that could still happen tomorrow, it hasn't happened yet, and it's been 20 years. Hells yes. And that's kind of a really exciting personal milestone to once again kind of prove them wrong, which is really wonderful. So, th I, and that's, I remember them saying that. And one of the fears, you know, we talk about long-term fears, mm -hmm is that I'm going to get blood cancer because they said so. And, you know, they also said I wouldn't be here, which is kind of nice. Happy so, birthday. Thank you very much. <laughs> Yay. Um, Happy birthday. <clears throat> and I just got back from ASCO, which is the um, international meeting of every oncologist in the world, 31,000 attendees at the McCormick Center in Chicago and countless dozen hotel meeting rooms. And it was extraordinary this year. Um, and I, I tweeted that there is... You know, whatever progress means, it's actually happening. And it's taken 40 years of research since the very first chemotherapy agents came out to really understand the molecules and the genes and the biology of why cells divide and what influences our immune system and how every human being is what they call N of one, which means we are all snowflakes. There is no one like us genetically ever in ex in history of humanity and how do we develop drugs that target just one person out of seven and a half billion and the truth is we do share genes they're just not all the same but of those genes that we share many diseases are linked to those genes so back in the day when we would be breast cancer colorectal cancer prostate cancer and just treat that organ that was sick now we're treating that gene that was sick. So we're going to start seeing these segmented groups of individuals based on your genetics. So there's going to be the BRCA Foundation, and there's going to be the, the I don't know, the, the HER2 Positive Foundation, and whatever the lung cancer gene. They, the, that's what's going to start happening in the next couple of years. We're going to be segmenting ourselves by genes. Mm. The challenge is going to be keeping the cost of drugs down because you're not selling them to massive swaths of populations. It's going to be many less people. But the advantage is if you find those people, we can accelerate those drugs to market more quickly because their, their outcomes are astonishing, 80 90% remission rates in like three months wow. in certain cases. Um, so that was the takeaway. And the other takeaway from ASCO, besides where are all these patients we need to get on trials, is <clears throat> you know more along the lines 
of how do we actually care about patients instead of caring about the bottom line and what role do patients play in our understanding of engagement now that we need the patients more than ever for these trials how do we understand them and what role do, do the lawyers play because the lawyers don't want to play so that was it was really exciting a lot of good things a lot of great meetings stupid cancer was front and center i i actually think that it was the first asco that we've been at where i had to make very few elevator pitches everyone knew us which was incredible uh, and finally, before we kick off the show, uh, I, I I love when things like sort of blow up on our Facebook wall every now and then. You never really know what's going to make a difference or stir some controversy up. Uh, a wonderful artist who's been precedented in making like disparaging reimaginations of cartoons into very controversial experiences. He did a If the Simpsons Were Black and Chief Wiggum Were White, kind of like those type, really controversial he just reimagined um, a lot of cartoon characters, Disney princesses and the Simpsons, as breast cancer mastectomy patients and what that would look like. And the Facebook page went batshit in support of and uh, against. And what I found most interesting is, you know, people are just so sick of breast cancer being the thing that everyone goes to. Why didn't he do you know, uh, a, a, like an ostomy bag on all these princesses or Mickey Mouse, and why isn't uh, is it is it a double orchiectomy or a brain cancer scar? Like why just everyone has breast cancer? So I, I think, you know, from a completely anecdotal anthropology, America's just pissed at breast cancer, and the, I mean again, and we will not be seeing breast cancer because it's all going to be genetics. And they're treating breast cancer with colon cancer medicines now. And it's, it's anyway, I digress. But it, it, we're living in fascinating times for the first time. I'm really excited. It's going to be a few more years, of course, till these become reality. But the science is actually understandable now. And that, that's amazing. So, uh, so let's kick off our show. In our Survivor Spotlight tonight, we are going to be featuring the one and only Allison Ward. She is our Vice President of Programming. An eight-year stage four ovarian survivor, she became a global leader for the Young Adult Cancer Movement in 2012 as an employee number three of Stupid Cancer and the executive producer of the OMG Cancer Summits and CancerCon. Please welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show to talk all about Get Busy Living Day, Allison Ward. You know, Allie. Hey, everyone. Hey, I mean, you're a legend at this point, but... I never get tired of hearing you tell your story because it is so emblematic of everything we stand for and so emblematic of making the most of the shit you're dealt with and living every single day, regardless of UPS failing to deliver your package, uh, with dignity and with courage. So with that, um, I would love you to just re re recount to all of us what your life has been for the last eight years. Okay, well, in July, uh, July 5th, 2007, I was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. We didn't know it was stage four yet, but we did, that was the day that we found out it was definitely cancer. Um, I was 35 years old, single. I had my own condo, um, pretty much was love and life, and all of a sudden, cancer came into the picture. Uh, life changed overnight. Um, I was no longer 
focus on the little things like paying my mortgage or going to work. I was more just trying to stay alive. Um, and I, the cancer was in multiple places. So I immediately started chemotherapy um, and then radiation following uh, when we figured out where the cancer had spread to. Um, and the next year really was just all about getting through treatment. It, you know, every day, get up, go to work, go to treatment. That was it. Uh, for me, I hadn't really thought about what life was outside of cancer. Um, and then unfortunately treatment at the time wasn't really working and, and the disease kept progressing. Uh, and finally the doctor said, you know, we don't think treatment's working for you and we don't have any other options. Uh, and this was January of 2009, and they said, we think you only have three to six months to live. And, geez, I'm choking up. This was years ago. Um, and it's still to this day really hard to remember what it felt like to be, you know, not yet 40 and told that I might not live to my 40th birthday. Um, and it was, it was devastating news at the time. Um, and I, uh, luckily, you know, eight years later, I'm, standing here seven years later, I'm sitting here saying I'm still alive, but there were parts of me um, that just really gave up. I sold my house, I quit my job, I moved in with my parents. Um, I pretty much gave, I gave away everything preparing to die. I uh, wrote my will, planned my funeral service, everything. Um, and in those years, in those months and subsequent years following, I was very ill and I, I did get better and treatment helped here and there and, and I did acupuncture and things like that. But at some point I stopped focusing on who I was anymore. Um, and I, for a while, I was really pissed off uh, that I didn't die because I gave up so much. Um, and then some things started happening. Uh, people that I met in the cancer world, uh, people that kept staying in touch and, and uh, just wanted me to realize that life was still available to me. Uh, and that's when I became involved with stupid cancer. Uh, Matt, you never stopped calling me and bugging me. Uh, and uh, I went on um, a trip with First Ascent. And I realized that life wasn't over for me. It was going to be different, and who knew what that was going to look like, and it didn't matter if I had one month left to live or one year or ten years, that it was time to start living again. Uh, and I think that might be when the motto came into my life of stupid cancer is get busy living. Uh, so it was, uh, I heard something yesterday on a TV show that says get busy living or get busy dying. So I stopped get busy dying and started get busy living. And um, I volunteered with Stupid Cancer. And uh, that kind of is all she wrote. Uh, life changed once I decided that I wasn't going to twiddle my thumbs and sit in my lazy boy and wait for you know, death to happen, that I was really going to grab life uh, and start living it again. And I went on several trips. I created Ali Palooza which was a challenge to myself to figure out what life was going to be like after cancer. And for me, it's not after cancer, as you know, Matt, it's with cancer. You know, I'll never be without cancer and I'll go back on and off treatment as needed. Uh, but I don't let cancer rule me. I uh, decide I'm going to rule cancer. And every year when you tell your story at CancerCon or the OMG Summit, 
<clears throat> you know, we have um, a turnover, so there's a lot of new people that haven't heard your story. But I, it, we never get tired of hearing that story because it is so many people's stories. And again, it, it's the backdrop of, of so many conversations happening in the world of cancer about chronic condition and uh, genetics and targeted therapy and living with the disease and quality, not quantity. It, they're, they're, and, and that was kind of the gist of ASCO is everyone's an N of one and you are clearly an N of one. The one and only yeah. Allison Ward. <laughs> the one and only Allie Ward. Yeah. Um, if there was two of me, I think the world might revolt. Uh, yeah. Um, you certainly would. I, I don't think the stupid cancer office could handle two of me. No, but, no. Uh, or two of I any of us. I don't think I'm the one and only. I mean, I think that I certainly am unique and my story is somewhat unique. But then again, I feel like it does represent a lot of the stories of, of the stupid cancer community. Um, and I'm glad, I'm really honored that I can be a voice and that I can stand up at stupid can, I mean, at CancerCon and OMG and tell my story and, and provide a little bit of, you know, if it's inspiration for somebody uh, to help them as they, you know, join this community and, and uh, move forward in their survivorship. So you had mentioned that quote from the Shawshank Redemption, Stephen King's book turned a film with uh, Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman in the 90s. That line is in the book, Get Busy Living or Get Busy Dying. And I that movie came out in the 90s while I was still you know, suffering through figuring out what to do with my life and not knowing where things were going to go. And I, I did kind of absorb that as a bit of a mantra. So it's no surprise, there should be no surprise, that that was always the tagline of Stupid Cancer, Get Busy Living and... We now have, you know, it, it is, I think, the, the three-word slogan most associated with our organization, what we represent, our community, and our, our brand. Um, and now we have this entire amazing thing finally happening around Get Busy Living. So I want to bring Sean on because he's sitting here next to me looking adorable. Um, and oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> let's, let's talk about what we're now having Get Busy Living Day. Yes, so um, this is something that's been in the talks here internally at Stupid Cancer for some time, <clears throat> but our motto is get busy living, and, and Ali has certainly exemplified that um, amongst the many amazing people in our community. So we wanted to create a day to just celebrate our mission, our what we're here to do, which is to get busy living. Um, so we are launching the inaugural first ever get busy living day it is saturday june 13th 2015 and we have some anchor cities that we'll be celebrating in um denver will be hosting a picnic which is awesome a little barbecue um new york and phoenix will uh, each be having a bowling event uh, which is really great um oh man i thought you were just about to say something no i was gonna say something campy and corny but i decided not to Oh, go ahead. You just put yourself on the spot. Strike out cancer. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, God. No. Oh, no. <laughs> you, you asked for it, so. Oh, God. <laughs> We're going to go in and just edit that Spare out. Spare me. <laughs> Spare me, cancer. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and then uh, last but not least, Southern California or SoCal, depending on how hip you are, um, just outside of Los Angeles, we'll be hosting a comedy night. Um, and some really new, uh, exciting news. We just uh, confirmed that Gary Cannon, uh, who is a stand-up comedian and the official warm-up comic for Conan, um, will be hosting and performing that night. So wow. 
um, really awesome. And we do have some more exciting guests. We just need to confirm. Um, so look out. But yeah, the the idea is really just to celebrate getting busy living. What what you do to, you know, um, take cancer, give it the big middle finger, and and get busy living. Um, right, and that ties into what we've been actually doing. This is an amazing like byproduct of what kind of I think Allie and I invented one day drunk on bacon at the diner, which is Get Busy Living Award. Because we decided to start giving out awards at our annual conference, but we never really had something that, you know, how do you, how, how do you like judge who gets busy living more or less than the other person? And it was, we rat- rattled our heads for months to figure out how do we possibly do this while still being sort of egalitarian in recognizing that everybody chooses to get busy living at some point in their life with, with when faced with cancer. Allie, why don't you talk about the origins of that and how we're, how it's all panned out so far? Well, I'm trying to remember the origin, and I'm going to cleave my chemo brain here, but I do think it was one of those late-night conversations where we were talking about what Get Busy Living meant to us um, and how we wanted the community to celebrate that. And I think that at the time, there's this myth in the in the cancer world that in order to get busy living, you have to do these huge things like run a marathon or, for me, go on a road trip or something like that. And we realized it wasn't, it didn't have to be that crazy. It could be the simple things in life um, that you do. And we wanted to acknowledge our community members. So we did a, the first year we did this, I believe was 2012. Yes. Um, and we did a call for members of the community to nominate individuals that they felt got busy living in whatever that meant to them. Um, and one of, some of the criteria we were using was giving back to their community, taking a not me, uh, a no not me attitude, um, or a why me attitude, and just uh, really exemplifying, you know, taking life a hold of, you know, even though you got cancer. And we uh, had, I can't even remember how many nominations that year, but we ended up with a finalist, uh, nine finalists that were voted on by the community. Um, and we've done a similar uh, motto the last four years. Um, so we've had almost, I think, 35 to 40 uh, nominee finalists over the last four years. And we've had four grand prize uh, Get Busy Living Award winners. It's been quite astonishing, and and I we were I remember you probably read it probably was in in your house at like three in the morning when we were doing our our local brainstorms, but I we we were afraid that we would get some like negative feedback like how dare you choose this over this person I'm just as relevant and we never got that and I there's such a shared appreciation for everyone's struggle in the young adult cancer world. And I, I take that back to my, my experience in the brain cancer world as a brain cancer survivor and what I've witnessed firsthand in the colorectal world and the breast cancer world, like who suffers more and woe is me, my story is more important. That just doesn't happen. And I, I my, my takeaway here, even so many years later, is is there isn't, there that doesn't exist in the young adult world. And when we even talk about you know it's not a contest about body parts benign tumors are just as devastating it's like this shared understanding as to you know this may have been a little worse over here this could have been a little better over here but we're all banded together you know what's interesting that i have found over the last four years is our nominees and ultimately our winners 
are almost the antithesis of that competition. They do not think that they have gotten busy living any more than anybody else. Um, and that I find that they really are just a good representation of our community. Because uh, every year the winner always says to me, well, everybody else's story was so incredible. How could you just choose one of us? Um, and it's the community as a whole that is chosen. Uh, but it, it really goes to show that in that young adult community, we do not have that competition as much as I think society likes to put on us. And that's really what we're all about, you know. It, it, but I, the takeaway is is that this is how this generation feels about cancer and our journey and our relationships with each other. And we're not pitting sorrow against sorrow we're all struggling to try to have it suck just a little less every single day um so what's going on now in terms of so get is it's get org, right that's the page that's correct kenny yes confirming? okay we get the double blind study here get org. we are encouraging all of our listeners to learn what that is if you happen to live near southern california phoenix um, New York City, or what's the other one? What's the fourth one? Did you say Denver? Denver, thank you. Yes, Southern California, Phoenix, Denver, or New York. Please participate. Find that on on uh, social media, on our Facebook pages, or on the website itself. And if you're interested in learning more about how you can do more on Get Busy Living Day this coming June 15th, please email us at contact at stupidcancer.org. The hashtag is... It'll be Get Busy Living Day. Um, okay. Hashtag, yeah. Good. And and that it's just more than those events. So we do have these anchor events in these these cities. Um, we we encourage you guys to get involved even more next year with 2016. We we want to expand that city list. Um, so we will have more official events in 2016. This is just the start. Um, and you can get involved by you know tweeting, um, posting on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, get busy living. How do yeah. you get busy living? Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. Allie, final thoughts, final word? Just keep get busy living, whatever that means to you. To the bar. Kenny? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Allie, thank you for joining us once again. I will see you when you're back here in New York. Of course. I'll be in town for Get Busy Living Day. Hey, that's a thing, right? I'm kidding. June 15th, getbusylivingday.org. Thank you, Allie. Bye, folks. 13th. Bye, folks. Okay, Kenny, and now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop. Calendar for all of our social and educational events happening nationwide. Something could be happening in the woods. We certainly don't want you missing out. All right, we have some meetups happening in Chicago. Uh, Des Moines, or Des Moines. <laughs> Who said that? Wasn't Des Moines, someone. Someone. Uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, San Antonio, Texas. And I think that's it for now. If you want to host your own meetup, check out stupidcancer.org forward slash meetup. Are you on speed? I am. Oh, boy. I'm going to slow down the recording. (laughs) Cancer is lonely, but you are not alone. We are talking about Instapeer, our brand new free mobile app that will help you connect with someone just like you. Instant anonymous matching and messaging for anyone affected by Young Adult Cancer, now available on your iPhone or Android. Just search the iOS or Google Play stores for Instapeer. 
I was just trying to make the news more efficient. Okay. All right. We launched a newsfeed aggregator on Tumblr for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash feed. Cancer is expensive. So we're proud to announce cancermademebroke.com. Yes, cancermademebroke.com. A national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. You didn't ask to get sick, and your community wants to help. Visit CancerMadeMeBroke.com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. It's always a good time to stock up on your stupid cancer gear. Visit StupidCancerStore.org anytime. Check out our $20, $10 t-shirt sales where you got a lot of stuff on sale. And uh, don't forget about Flip the Cancer Bird, our latest plushie mascot. That's StupidCancerStore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And that is your Stupid Stupid Cancer Cancer News. In the main segment here on the Stupid Cancer Show, we are going to welcome Dr. Zach Berger, primary care physician, epidemiologist, and bioethicist at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. He cares a lot about the doctor-patient relationship, communications, shared decision-making, and especially in the context of uncertainty. And returning champion to the Stupid Cancer Show, the one and only Regina Holiday, Maryland-based patient advocate artist, incredible artist, known for painting a series of murals depicting the need for clarity, transparency in medical records, and a, uh, a we like to say, a bereaved young adult spouse. Please welcome back Regina Holiday and Dr. Zach Berger. Folks... So this this topic really really excites me, and I again I just got back from ASCO, which uh, again is the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Thirty one thousand doctors from around the world around science and patient advocacy and civil liberties and outcomes and data and big data was the big conversation. And uh, the the output that I took the most umbrage with was that there was very little talk about primary care. And granted, they want to work in the silo of once you're diagnosed, what happens to you? But in that window of how you get diagnosed is what is most fascinating through the lens of young adult cancer, because we're often the ones that primary care gets beaten up a lot about. You're kind of like a punching bag for young adult cancer because you didn't know to tell us that we had cancer, but it's so rare. And at the same time, we are, are we entitled to be angry at primary care for not having that and what types of conversations need to happen that aren't happening. So I wanted to set the stage with that. But with that said, uh, Regina, your story is extraordinary because you are what I would see as the, the uh, embodiment of standing up for your rights and, and being as aggressive and squeaky wheel as possible. You lost your husband to 39 to young adult kidney cancer and all you really wanted was to understand what happened. So let's let's talk about that and those immediate challenges facing you. Uh, what was that? Oh my, that was like six years ago. Yep, we're almost at six years. Um, so, but unfortunately, the things that I fought for then, we still need to fight for today. Um, unfortunately, coordination of care is still a major problem. Access to records is still a major problem. Uh, right now, a lot of us are protesting a recent. Um, suggestion by CMS that um, a requirement with a meaningful use stage two that 5% of patients be able to um, view, download, transmit their medical record during a reporting period. Uh, institutions and providers came back with that was too hard to reach. So CMS came back with a suggestion of one patient. If one patient in an entire institution 
were to look at the record, then that fit the requirement, which really made a lot of us very, very mad. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous, right? right? Yeah, it's ridiculous. So, so we're sort of fighting this fight still six years later, exact same fight um, that I began. And is, is it, the, it's really a is battle. The, I mean, let's trace that chord, but is the core of the rationale behind CMS's policies about litigation, lawyers, policy, compliance, uh, profit, have we been able to sort of disseminate what the root of this really is? Okay, well, I mean, this would be CMS bowing to the interests of organizations and institutions that don't want to do it. So we're going back to what, what's, why are they thinking this, right? Right. Because CMS is just giving in to pressure, which means as patients we have to give more pressure. Um, so, so why would they not want us to see a record? Okay. I mean, I think you just listed a lot of this. Well, I <laughs> but, mean, there's a litany yeah, of I things, mean, you know. Um, the, the, the reasoning they say is because it's, it's too hard. Patient populations don't care, and they can't, doctors can't make them do anything. So, therefore, uh, this is an unreasonable goal. So, they're making the assumption that we're too stupid for this. That's what they're saying, yes. Okay. So, that... Me, I, I actually I was at a, a at a panel at ASCO, and for some reason the, the the conversation got a little heated, and I pretty much said that I am the chief angry officer of the young adult cancer world, and that like went viral on Twitter when they tweeted it. So, I, I mean, I'm, title. I think I think more people should. I know, like, yeah. but, but I mean, yeah, like the pick up that title. Right? No, you're right, and, and there were actually there was like a, a congresswoman from Missouri on this panel, and she was nodding her head. So, it, it's not for sake of of common sense. So uh, let's go back to, to to Zach now, because from the for, from the perspective of the of the provider of the primary care, you know where are you in this? Clearly, you you know the Hippocratic Oath do no harm. You you want the patients to be as informed as possible. You're looking for patients to maybe not necessarily bring a stack of a hundred pages printed from Google, but to come perhaps prepared for a conversation. Yeah, I want I want people to do what they want. And um, I want people, everybody to have the opportunity to not just look at, obviously, and not, not, not just look at the medical record as it is, because as we all know, you, know, you, t you take your typical electronic health record and opening it up is a morass. Right. But I want people to, to look at it. I want things to be presented in a way that people can understand. I want everybody to look at their lab results, to email their doctor, their nurse, to, to you know, I would love people to see exchanges between specialists, right? When Dr. X emails Dr. Y, I'd like the patient to, to be in on that, too. Right. I'd like things to be open and transparent. I'd like to know who pays for our medical records, and, and I'd like to know how they're going to be improved and what's on that list and what, agen what agendas are being served and when, when those things are going to get done. I'd like to know all those things. Right, and, um, and why, why do medical records cost money to get a copy of if they're your records, right? I know that's yeah, been a you know, heated I think, debate I think for Regina years. Yeah, I think Regina and other people, and Casey Quinlan and other patient advocates have, have really made me aware of, of how of how ridiculous this 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 possibility even is right to to imagine that it's like going back to 1985 and the age of the facts and you know I, I think everybody knows that many doctors offices are including mine are still mired in the facts I get 20 pages of faxes every day and then I go on Twitter and read how we're in the new age, the age of health IT right um, and so it's all ridiculous uh, by, by the same token I, I I do cast myself somewhat as a skeptic and I say that I want everybody to get what they want. Um, 
Um, by the same token, there's always going to be people that aren't ready for this, and there are people that aren't that aren't going to be up to putting on the waiting boots and getting into the medical record, and that's okay. And we need to serve those people as well. I just um, thought of a really exciting viral thing that we could all do. Let's take screenshots of tweets about how everything's HIT and fax those to thousands <laughs> of doctors. Oh my God, that's a great idea. And then, and then the other thing I want to go viral is I'd like to take my fax machine and destroy it with a hammer and have people take pictures of it. That's never going to happen. That's my fantasy world. No, but like, that's really office space with that printer. We all have to. That would be extraordinary to take the fax machine and th throw them off cliffs. <laughs> oh my God, you're ta you're talking my language, right? Yeah, exactly. No, I mean it, it, it's fascinating. I'm I'm really kind of still stuck on this idea that they think we're we're not intelligent enough to interpret data. We just finished a really unique. Uh, actually, we're in the midst of a really unique program with a major pharma company around trial awareness, and it was the it was the first time that these folks within the pharma industry had actual not, again non physicians, but actually like the the people in the inner workings of multi middle management upper management of pharma were speaking to patients about where they are in their journey, and the response from pharma to us is like they had no idea that the patients could be as well-known, uh, as, as uh, well-informed and articulate about these, these, these incredibly scientific interests. And they were researching, you know, not just Google, but they were on PubMed and they were going to the archives and they were, they were subscribing to Medline to understand like if, if this genome sequence doesn't work with this biomarker, will this chemo agent provide? And, and this concept that they think we're stupid is now being completely shattered, but yet, what could possibly move that needle? And I'll go back to Regina because you've been fighting for this for so long through so many different mediums. Yeah. I almost read a blog post after the, that came out and said, you know, this is sort of like slut shaming and victim blaming. <laughs> right. Know? Like you, you have trouble with the medical record system. So, so, so you're going to blame us? <laughs> right. You know? so, right? <laughs> that we're lazy or uneducated or um and so and also there was blame on the vendor i mean i think that part of the problem is there's way too much blame going on right. and not enough people working together so i've tried in every path as you've said to try to bring us together so whether it's art or speaking or writing or we need to all be on the same page we need to all be part of the same care team and just like you don't charge other doctors to see the medical record you know between providers that that would never happen um, you shouldn't do it to the patient if they're part of the care team, right? Right. Yeah, right. And you should right. you, you should uh, make the records available because because the person is the center of their care, and you want them to be talking to the physician or the nurse or wherever the provider is because you want there to be shared decision making. You want there to be a shared conversation. And I talk about this in my book, Talking to Your Doctor, which I can mention comes out in two weeks in paperback. That you know okay. it doesn't make any sense okay. to have people not on the same page and. Uh, Putting up these barriers is is old school in the worst possible way. We we have a lot of um, residents and interns and fellows and med students on the show. When I interact with them, quite often when I'm out there speaking, I'm sure you do as well, Regina. Um, so I, when I heard about your book, it's fascinating because you yeah, know who my is... book just came out real recently. Yeah. I'm very excited that it's doing as well as it is. Um, you know, a lot a lot of people have read it and have said that it's a great book. Um, that that it really gets to the heart of what it is we're talking about. And that was my goal. And it's written for regular people. Right. Um, so that really is key because a lot of this stuff has been very high level that we're talking about. And then folks get lost um, to the extent that language is not 
accessible. So I tried to write a book that made it incredibly accessible. I think I succeeded. Was it in crayon? <laughs> no, it was in actual written word. I mean, a lot of people were like, there's no pictures inside. Right. I'm like, yeah, there aren't any pictures. I wrote, I painted with words this time. Very nice. So, um, it, Ultimate, it did multimedia very well. art. Multimedia <laughs> art. Yeah, there you go. So, and, and then, and Zach, your book, Talking to Your Doctor, like, this has been a narrative for God knows how long the doctor patient relationship was, you know, the e patient conversation 10 years ago. And has that really changed? And has social media sort of either ruined or helped your career? Um, I, I have found a lot of value in social media. And um, I, I will say that I am a I am a believing skeptic with regard to social media. I like and that the term. Belief, the, the, yeah, the belief part comes because I think it's a wonderful thing. And I think there are so many powerful voices out there, Regina's among them, that, that make sure that people are treated as people and that, and social media helps make that true. You know, I, I read all these people's stories every day about, you know, from Regina, from, from, from hurt blogger, from, from all these people who, 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 from Dana, who all these people have their own life experiences and they teach you what it's like to live, live disease. And, and that's a wonderful and a very important thing. Um, and on the other hand, my skeptic, the skeptic hat in me says that social media as it's done now, oftentimes serves to empower the people that are already empowered. And there are great stories about people that, that get empowered through social media that didn't have any access before, but we still have a lot of disparities in our world, and, and, and social media has not yet managed to make those things go away. So that's why I'm, I have the belief and I have the skepticism. And, but I think on the whole it's very solitary for people and for, for patients and for doctors too. So I want you to tell me more about the comprehensive unit-based safety practice team in the general internal medicine practice at Hopkins, it's a lot of words, but it sounds really That's important. A lot of letters. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I think you know it comes it comes about it came about through a very um, you know this is not my idea, it, it's, but it's it's borrowing a patient safety idea that started in, in Johns Hopkins Hospital with with Peter Pronovost and uh, and his, his colleagues at the Armstrong Institute, and their idea is you're trying to get safety culture. To level out the hierarchy, you don't care whether it's a doctor, a nurse, a janitor, a physical therapist, um, a, a, a patient, a patient's uncle who points out something that could affect a patient's safety. You just care that it gets pointed out and taken care of, and that that approach has worked in the hospital. And so we need to have it working in the clinic too. In our in our clinic at Johns Hopkins, what we try to do is is we get together regularly in a room and we say, what are we not doing well? And it doesn't matter who points out problems. We're not blaming. We're not pointing fingers. We're, we're just trying to get the data. We're trying to hear what people say and, and find out what, what wrong thing happened, what system failure happened, and how can we make it better. Um, so that's a, a small thing that I helped start um, in our outpatient center based on our inpatient, our hospital safety experience. And I, you know, just, we just got some data about how, we're, how well we're doing in letting people know their lab results. And, you know, Hopkins is one of the top hospitals in the country, and we still have a, a, a fair way to go on that. And I, I bet a lot of hospitals have a fair way to go, too. And, and so just but seeing the data, is, it's sort of a, it's a wonderful thing to say, hey, look, we have numbers, so we, could, we can get better. We're going to get better. It just sounds to me like there's no one's giving the consumer the benefit of the doubt. But I, at the same time, I can, to play devil's advocate, if I may, I was actually at Hopkins uh, two weeks ago. I've been on the board for PCORI, which is the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, again, more words. And it was a three-year study funded to better understand how to present medical records to patients that I guess maybe you can't own, but at the same time 
will patients understand it better? But are they assuming we can't understand it now? And just to make this as, you know, politely, you know, discussed as possible, we spent three years debating on a on a reported outcome that up is good if it's like wellness, but up is bad if it's like pain. And how do you like, like and that was three years of this. And, and how do you present that to patients? And on the like the very first day, I said at the top of the chart, just put up is bad or up is good. And three years later, that's what they did. Yeah, I'll tell you that, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a, you're, you make a great point. There's a, there's always a conflict between rigorous science and, and things that make sense. And so sometimes, as you know, rigorous science gets so much in the weeds and so much in the, in the definitional intricacies that you kind of, you, you, you end up not being able to tell one part of the body from a hole in the ground, right? And, and, and so you come out of all of it and you're like, wait, we just figured out that grass is green um on the other hand sometimes you really need those definitional intricacies you really need to figure out so uh, there's a lot of great research going on about how it's not enough to tell to say oh look we've satisfied our patients right patient satisfaction we now know that i think a lot of people know that it's that's really an imperfect measure we don't just care about satisfying people right we care about healing them we care we want them happy we want people want want to be happy they want to be feel well they want to they want to get their records. They want all sorts of things, and satisfaction is a pretty poor measure. And one of the reasons we know that is because of research. It's about the, that definitional intricacy, right? It's, like, it's, not, it's, not, it's not about taking something on face value. So we've got to play both sides of that conundrum. So, Regina, in, in these, these six years, what have, have you seen the needle move on anything? Can we look at any sort of progress in this, this massive debate? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's progress. It's just one of those things that you got to keep pushing to keep the progress and momentum going. I mean, if you look at all the legislation that's been worked on in the last six years, so look at Affordable Care Act and look at Meaningful Use and look at the Partnership um, for Patients campaign and look what they're doing in ACOs, and all of them sort of align to the concept of patient empowerment. That's a big deal. Right. That they all, everything changed. <laughs> you know, and but what we now have is an entrenched status quo that really is worried because this stuff is actually going to happen. Value-based purchasing is happening. These, I mean, you know, the, the, the HF stores are available online. People can see what people think of you. You know, all this stuff's actually occurring when I think for a while people were sort of had their head in the sand about what that meant. Um, and so we've seen a lot of change in the last eight, uh, the part of the last six years. It's just a matter of to keep that change happening. You have to be able to, um, you have to be able to, in order to keep that change happening, keep the force on it, right? So that means we've got to keep people pushing. Patients got to come out. I mean, like Farzad says, we have to have a national day of people asking for the records to keep the momentum in place, because you know very well that healthcare tends to do things slowly. And we have gotten past the point where we can be slow any longer. People are dying. It's un- inappropriate, and we've got to change. So I feel like I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't let you talk more about the walking gallery and, and the impact that has had. And, you know, I'm giving a presentation next week to a bunch of, like, C-suite-level biotech guys, and they need to know that the patient is a part of success today that you can't achieve any goals, you can't be profitable, you can't have any sort of competitive edge if you don't involve the patient. And and you were one of the first people that really took to the arts and blew it out of the water 
for you know channeling your anger to make an impact? Yes, um, I've done as much as I could through the Walking Dollar. So the concept of the Walking Dollar started four years ago, and that the idea was I had gone to medical conferences where I saw not one patient in the room, no one who self-defined as patient. They self-defined as doctors and nurses and informatics professionals and CIOs. Um, CMIOs, CEOs, but nobody was saying, I'm a patient, hi. <laughs> you know? And so, and I also noticed they were all in business suits. And if you weren't wearing a business suit, you didn't get the time of day. You obviously weren't important. So I thought, okay, <laughs> there's something here, right? And so a friend of mine named Jen McCabe on Twitter said she could get into the American Medical Association. She had been invited, and she was willing to wear paintings on her back. And so she went with paintings on her back. And then in 2011, Kaiser Permanente opened the Center for Total Health. And when I saw that space, I thought, wow, this would be a great gallery space. And my friend Ted Atem, who worked there, said, well, these are smart walls. You can't put up art on smart walls. And I said, I know that. I, I know you can't put up art on smart walls. It's one of those things that um, you, you could wear the art on your back. That would be amazing if you could do that. And so he said, yes, that's a great idea. Let's put it to Kaiser Permanente. And so, so – Kaiser Permanente approved the idea, and so we had our first gathering in 2011. There were 56 people wearing jacket paintings. They've been painted by about um, seven different artists, and that's where it started. And ever since then, it's grown. So at this point, we have over 357 members of the walking gallery. There are over 43 artists making art. We are spread on five continents. And it just keeps growing. And we're actually having a conference here in Western Maryland this week called Cinderblocks 2, and we'll have another gathering in the walking gallery. And it's going to be beautiful. Right now we're making all these illuminated candles that will um, basically light the way for people to walk into the space. And it'll just be this amazing sacred moment of coming together and being empowered. It's it's truly extraordinary, and it, it it's unlike many many things that I've encountered. It, it I'm you sh I hope you're very proud, and I take a lot of ownership over it. I am very very happy with the walking gallery and what it means to so many people. We just were at Awesome Con in D.C., and we had five new people join the movement right there at Awesome Con. Wait, you know, Awesome just, Con it, is that what it's called? Awesome Con. There was Awesome Con was at basically a comic book convention that was in D.C. this last weekend. Um, I was at it. <laughs> And um, so all these people were cosplaying, you know, as superheroes and such, and they came to my booth, and my booth was sponsored by Kaiser Permanente, and I was painting for the walking gallery, and people were really confused. <laughs> they were like, what is Kaiser Permanente doing at a comic book convention? Right, exactly. <laughs> said, well, they believe in what I do, and so they've sponsored it, and they're like, what do you do? And so I explained it and that we don't charge for the, the paintings, that it's a movement that you become part of, you become a hero in your own life, and it was really great because they're like, wow, you know, this place is weird, but you're weirder than us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's Tyler, Regina. Every time I, every time I, see, I see you and uh, talk about a, a, a new person joining the walking gallery, it makes me very happy. And, 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 to see, and to see you post, you know, the picture of the person with the jacket, it's like a... Isn't it great? Like, it's a wonderful feeling. It's really wonderful. You know, it just yeah, this you. family gets bigger and bigger. And it's like yeah, I've talked to nice people thing. at conferences where there's only one other person in a jacket, they'll see one other. And they're like, oh, there's one more that person that thinks like me, that, that, yeah, that yeah. thinks outside the box. Right. And Yeah. So, so, Zach, you have another book coming out, um, and uh, you have it written here. It's a Bridging Evidence-Based Medicine and Patient-Centered Care. It seems like you're trying to actually put the, put, like, make an economic case for all of this. 
Well, I, the book is going to be titled "Making Making Sense of Medicine." When I and uh, and it's I think really we're we're trying to get to the sweet spot. Everybody is is you know there are groups of people that that try to figure out what the best evidence is on the one hand. That's often derived from populations of people, groups of people. And then on the other hand, over here you have the person. Every person is unique and different and has their own needs. And how do you bridge those two? So I think um, getting getting a record as part of that and getting the patient involved in decision-making and, and having a communicative relationship as part of that. So the book's going to treat all those, all those things, uh, not with so much art as Regina, unfortunately, but, but maybe with right. some prose and some, uh, some illumination along the way. Yeah. So, so we have like uh, three to four minutes left. I was hoping if, if you're able to, how much of this, and this is sort of really rhetorical, how much of this could all be solved through legislation? And is there anything going through the government at this point or even getting started that could potentially resolve any of this? Well, you're talking about, you're talking about access to, to records? Access to records and making them understand we're not stupid. Right. Uh, well, I think, uh, well, as far as the making, making understand, people understand that, that we as people and people as patients are not stupid, I, I think there needs to be more... Um, I think there needs to be more promotion of the idea of shared decision making, and to really figure out what that means and incentivize payers and 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 providers and institutions to make that happen. To make sure that you know we can talk about precision medicine and give money to precision medicine, but let's make sure that the patient is actually deciding what matters to them first. And so records are part of that, sure, and and access is part of that, but also it, there has to be a stop and a pause and a and a, you know, you have to make the money follow the decision making. You have to say, we're going to talk to patients. We're going to have people at the center of their care. And we're going to make sure people get paid for that. I think that's what has to happen. Regina, have you done lobbying? Have you spoken to congressional leaders? Oh, yeah. I mean, I did years ago. So I spoke uh, before a subcommittee for meaningful use, and I spoke in front of a Senate press conference on the Affordable Care Act. And I spoke um, to another panel that was a vital health statistics panel about measures that matter to patients um, and basically just trying to get that real worldview. And, of course, I'm a major proponent of open notes, which is a big deal, and a lot of people still don't know about it. So that was a study that Robert Wood Johnson Foundation did between 2010 and 2012 that showed that if patients could read their doctor's notes, they had better adherence to medical protocols and better understanding. And it was pretty amazing. It showed that patients would actually look at the information. They would act upon the information. It did not cause major changes in the doctor's workflow. Basically, all the arguments against having data access is sort of blew out of the water. And what was really cool, too, about open notes is it's a concept. It's a thought process. It's not dependent upon electronic medical record systems. So you could do open notes in a paper-based system. The idea is you're opening up data, whether it's paper or electronic. Of course, things are much easier with electronic systems than they are with paper systems. Well, I could see but, the joke in there, which is like, you know, can you read the doctor's notes because they, they have terrible handwriting? Right. right. You see, like, this is the thing. Like, I have horrible handwriting because I'm dyslexic, right? I'm dysgraphic. And so if, if a person makes me fill out a form and paper, they're going to make a judgment call about me, that I'm stupid. You know, not in the doctor, funny, funny, ha-ha, weird cursive, but her print is atrocious. She looks like a kindergartner when she writes, <laughs> you know, and people think badly about you when you do that. So, so I'm a really smart person, but I have major disabilities when it comes to handwriting. So, so for me, 
it, electronic medical records and being able to put things in computer systems is a godsend, and it's a godsend for so many people who are not neurotypical. Autism populations, you know, we, we, there's a whole bunch of people in this world that if they had to survive in the old handwriting world, they would fail. And, and we don't want that. We want people to have a chance, right? I guess my last question is, is I guess to you both, but I'll go with Zach first, is in, in, in the interest of primary care, personality and bedside manner clearly play a role. And whether that's nature-nurture, you're going to always find the physicians who will engage the patients because that's their nature. And you're just going to find people in general who don't think that that's important. What role does continuing education or like a website like Sermo or, or these, these doctor groups uh, play in, in helping those who may not be predisposed to appreciating the, the, the relationship, even if it's seven minutes long that you have with patients, that this is what's going on today? Uh, I think, I, 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 first, I think you raise an important point that people are always going to group into uh, groups that they feel comfortable in. So the people that aren't the best communicators, um, you're not going to, uh, you're not going to make them into, into the great communicators of the world. But I think changing culture that, 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 um, so that people realize that talking to patients is something for which there's incentives and expectations, that's where these physician groups can come into play, that spreading the news and the expectation that this is what we do, just like now more and more people are realizing that um, getting the patient access to their medical record, this is what we do. And, you know, although we thought the fight for is, is is on the front lines with that, People are realizing that's what we do, and so the time will come, I think, when there's an expectation that communicating is what we do. Regina, final thought. Well, I mean, I concur wholeheartedly. The major thing is we've got to be on the same page. We've got to be working together. Social media is a godsend because it gives us the opportunity to be all on the same page. Um, I, I know I wouldn't be part of this dialogue or conversation if it wasn't for social media because and it gave me a voice and it gave me the opportunity to um branch out there. So if I, I were ever to say anything to anybody, is please get on Twitter. If you have a cause, if you believe in something, because you'll meet other people just like you, and be, together we can change everything. Regina Holiday, uh, artist, teacher, muralist, patient's rights advocate, founder of The Walking Gallery, blogging at Regina Holiday with two L's at .blogspot.com and on Twitter at Regina Holiday. Um, Zach, are you on uh, Twitter? I am. I'm at Zach Berger, MD, PhD. And um, Z-A-C-K Burger, B-E-R-G-E-R-M-D-P-H-D. Oh, and Regina, your book. Tell us your book. Uh, it's The Writing on the Wall at Amazon, on Kindle, in both paperback. And uh, Dr. Burger has Talking to Your Doctor, also on Amazon? All on Amazon, in paperback in two weeks, and in Kindle, and uh, yes. All right, and uh, Zach Berger, physician, epidemiologist, bioethicist at Johns Hopkins. Thank you both for joining us. An incredible debate on patients' rights and the doctor-patient relationship. Uh, take care of yourselves, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. All right, Regina Holiday and Dr. Zach Berger. Thanks. Okay, Kenny, now it is time for our closing sequence. But before we get to that, I did want to take a moment to honor the memory of Rochelle Charette's, a young adult breast cancer survivor. I met her about 10 years ago. She's the founder of an amazing organization called Charcherette in uh, Jersey. They are pretty much the only... Um, international organization that serves the needs of young women facing breast cancer uh, that are Jewish, which have unique predispositions and genetic anomalies. Um, Charcherette.org 
Uh, she passed away yesterday from complications of breast cancer after a very long battle, and she was married uh, just last year. So uh, a special thank you to Rochelle for being a hero and a mentor of mine. Uh, you will be missed. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. The 349th episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, Allie Ward. Dr. Zach Berger and the one and only Regina Holiday. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. If you haven't already, visit stupidcancershow.org and never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and or subscribing to the free podcast on your mobile device, SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. Remember, folks... It ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Coming to you from the chemo deck. And on behalf of myself, Kenny Kane, Mallory Rivera, Sean Shapiro, and the lovely Jesse McKenzie. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next broadcast of the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks, folks. Take care.